Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club. We're back. Mike, we're back. We are back with The Art of Impossible. Well, so why, why do you think we've chosen this one by Stephen Kotler? Because there are only boring sales books left to read that added no value at all to anybody. <laughs> True though, isn't it? You know, a lot of people so, ask me what makes a great salesperson. And, you know, a, a chunk of it in, inevitably is all those things, sales process, listening skills, questioning skills, all that kind of stuff. But I actually think a big chunk of it is the person. You know, their own thought yeah, on themselves definitely. and their own thought on life. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Seven Habits by Stephen Covey. Is that a sales book? No. If you read and use Seven Habits as a methodology to be organized, will you be more successful? Yes, 100%. But it's not a sales book. Look at what you've been working on with one of our people today about prioritizing tasks. She'll be better now. That's a more useful book the nine out of 10 of the sales books I think we've read on the show. Let's get right, Johnny. We had some uh, people whose book we reviewed who, who refused to come on the show. Now, the reality is I told it as it was. I thought the book was absolutely garbage. And unless somebody can come up with a sales book that we've not read that's any good, then I'm not going to read anymore. No, I mean, we've got a couple scheduled in, but they'd better be good. And if they're not, they're going to get panned and we're going to be honest about it, are we? Yeah, 100%. So it's all part of the armory of of salespeople and, and actually salespeople as effective people. You know, I, we're going a bit off kilter here, but I know a few successful people who aren't salespeople. A mate of mine owns a civil engineering company. He's got more Swiss watches than a Swiss banker, this guy. That's cool. Not a salesperson, but immensely effective, immensely effective man. And actually, could a salesperson learn a lot from him? 100%. 100%. Right. He sounds all right to me. So the book is called The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. I think for me, the reason why I, I was keen to cover this is, and I, and I said this, I, I recorded some intro video stuff whilst I was out walking this morning. And um, I think the main point is, the last two years, Mike, when was the last time you spoke to a salesperson who hadn't hit target? Uh, quite a few, actually, but I get your point. <laughs> Most of them have. Yeah, I think the last few years have been pretty easy for a lot of people in our industry, even though it's been a rough old time with COVID and that's not been pleasant and not being out on the streets. But a lot of people have had a very, very good time. And I think we're about to enter a period that might not be quite so easy. And I think this is a timely book. It, this is about being a performer. I truly believe there's a lot of people out there at the moment who are earning an awful lot of money without really asking themselves the question, am I firing? Am I winning? Am I performing? Am I everything I need to be in order to win. I think a lot of people at the moment are making money because they ended up in a career in sales in the IT industry at the right time. So I thought this would be a good one because what this book is about, after I get past the dedications to his mum and dad, is he, he said the book is designed specifically for those of us with completely irrational standards for our own performance and totally unreasonable expectations for our lives. I like that. And that's who it's about. It is people with unreasonable expectation, people who want a bit more. And he goes on to say, he talks about what he calls lowercase and uppercase impossible things, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I have read the book. You know, yeah. Moon landings, big eye. And that's in the introduction. And he winds us all up. 
and he talks about magic, which gets a bit boring. But then we get to chapter one and he starts talking about biology and what he really talks about and what, as we start to get into the book, is this concept of flow, which he calls an optimal state. And it's a big part of a lot of thinking I'm doing at the moment, a lot of that concept of just being in the zone and getting on with work. Well, you know me, Johnny, I don't like going in the office. And why is that? Because you can be in flow in your home. Yeah, perfectly happy. Hardcore dance music from the late 90s, just cracking on. Being in the office with other people asking you shit and interrupting you disturbs your flow. Mm. You can get into that little performance state where you're on your phone, you're out and about, you bang, 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 and you're at your optimal performance zone, aren't you? Mm. And he talks about it. He says, flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. It's the state created by evolution to enable peak performance. That is why in every domain, whenever the impossible becomes possible, flow always plays a starring role. And it does get pretty geeky about this whole concept of of, of flow. And then the, the next bit that I highlighted here is he goes, pulling off the impossible, or for that matter, significantly leveling up your own game absolutely requires flow, but it also requires training up many of the same skills that flow amplifies motivation, learning, and creativity. And he said, what we're going to do is spend the rest of the book exploring a quartet of cognitive abilities, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. And I think if, if, if I was a sales guy and I was having a bit of a rotten time of it, I think that's four good places to start thinking about your motivation, what you're learning, how creative, and are you actually in flow? Are you getting stuff done? Are you plowing through what you need to plow through? One of the things he talks about that I found really interesting is this concept of infinite games. Uh, okay. Page 12 of 324. Yeah, it's a long book. And I, as it happens, I just met a mate for lunch and uh, we had a little sandwich and we were talking about, he said, if you had loads of money, would you, would you stop working? I said, I would stop work with immediate effect if I was rich. I wouldn't work another day more than I need to. Oh, yeah, I love you, Pricey, and all of that and love the people that work for us and all that, but reality is if I had money, I wouldn't work. I'd find other things to do. And he said, well, but what about these people who love the game? And what he's talking about here is this infinite game. He says, well, infinite games have no clear winners or losers. And it actually made me understand why some people make loads of money and then just keep going. Yeah, no, I just don't think that's too broad a sweeping statement, personally. I think they want to play the infinite game. No established time frame for play, no fixed rules. In infinite games, the field of play is mutable. Number of participants keep changing and the only goal is to keep on playing. But I think that's very valid with sales as well. I think there's a if you interviewed... 100 top sales performers, actually the infinite game is what attracts them to it. I don't know. I mean, we'd have to interview them. It's interesting because you and I are going to have very different uh, opinion on this. And he sort of goes into it. I know I'm going a chapter ahead on motivation decoded and talks about extrinsic and intrinsic influences on the outside. And that, that's sort of referring to that. The infinite game isn't what keeps me in it. So, so you know, I've got a favourite client of mine and I had dinner with her whenever it was, I can't remember now, a week, or two, a week or two ago, she's not in it for the infinite game at all. She's not in it for that. She's in it for the money. Yeah, 100% she's in it for the money. And, and actually, you know, I, I know a few people who've got a bit of cash that they've made themselves. And when they stay in the game, having made a load of money, far more than they actually need, I do look at them and think, what are you doing? I do as well. 
I think what you're doing. So I think this is And it's not a jealousy thing. It's just a, why would you do that? You you don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, I'm all for work. I really like the clients. I really like the candidates. I like the job. I like the people. I know it sounds like an odd thing to say because we do with salespeople and people think I'm mad. But no, I, but we, we could have much harder jobs, couldn't we? We could have much harder jobs. You know, I, I, I really do like them. But I do wonder about that infinite game thing. I didn't really buy it. What's interesting about this book, actually, is that you know the kind of book I like is a manual. Yeah, this is a little bit theoretical, isn't it, for you? It's like a, a PhD paper, is what it's like. Do you know what book you'd like? I'm reading Principles for Dealing with the New World Order by Ray Dalio at the moment. And the book starts, it's like 600 pages long. And he says, listen, if you're in a hurry and you can't be bothered, the bits that are in bold will get you kind of to the end of the book pretty quickly. If you really want to know the deep stuff, read the whole book. Yeah, exactly. And literally, he said, I can tell you the whole story if you just read the bits in bold. But if you really want the detail, I've got it. High, I've got the whole thing here. So you could read the whole book and be pretty knowledgeable just reading the bits he's put in bold. You'd love that. Two hours later, you've nailed it. And the, the point here is with this particular book is, for you, it's not great in as much as... No, I, I want to retract that. I don't think it's not great. I think it's excellent. A really good book, but it, it's a slightly different book to that which I would naturally get stuck into. And like the infinite game bit, it'd be hard to disagree with this guy because he's... Well, his research is clearly awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, man. It's excellently researched. Absolutely superb. But do I agree with what you said there? No. Well, that's the thing. But what would be interesting is if you met Elon Musk tomorrow, you'd think he plays the infinite game. It's all about the game for Elon Musk. It's not about money, is it? Because he would say Elon Musk's the perfect example because he'd say Elon Musk's playing for the art of impossible with a capital I. He's looking at putting people in Mars. Yes, yes. But what all of these texts... So let's put it another way. So I'm having an extension built at the minute, right? And um, one of the young lads is a trainee bricklayer who actually it's quite difficult to be a bricklayer. I thought it was easy, but evidently not. And actually he's laying bricks to survive. To get by? No, to survive. Not to get by, to survive. Right. Got two kids, 22. And he told, I asked him what he got paid, just so I wanted to make sure my builder wasn't ripping me off actually. And page 21 is great, but it's better said by Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And where Elon Musk is, he's at that point of self-actualization. Of course he is. When you get to that point, then people have a choice to make. Now, what you and I are talking about is at the point of self-actualization, what do we do? I go, yeah, I'm high enough up the top of the pyramid. I'm, yeah, that's me. I'm good. I'm going to go create another pyramid somewhere else. Whereas actually what he's saying is that to be an Elon Musk-esque person, you've got to aim for the iron impossible, which I don't actually agree with. I don't actually think that's right, but that's because we're different people. Yes. And what he does point out is everybody's got their own impossible. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, he, there's a quote here I quite liked. Motivation is what gets you into the game. Learning is what helps you continue to play. Creativity is how you steer and flow is how you turbo boost the results beyond all rational standards and reasonable expectations. That, my friends, is the real art of impossible. Welcome to the infinite game. And that's the introduction to the book. So part one is motivation. He's saying, you know, opening line of the chapter is that impossible and chasing impossible does have a formula. And what he talks about is that motivation is a capsule for three key things. One of them is drive grit and goals. Now, I do like that. It's interesting. How many clients do we deal with? I, I actually took a job spec the other day. Uh, it's a client that we're doing quite a bit of work with at the moment, we're busy with, where they talk a lot about grit. Yeah. Well, you know it's important to me, that, Johnny, because that, that is... I mean, that's you personified as grit. 
Yeah, of course it is. But there's a measure, isn't there? There's an indifference curve between those three things. What, drive, grit, and goals? Yeah, I think so. I think there's like an indifference curve. Some people are driven, some people are about goals. You know, they're they're three intertwined things that you can't really necessarily separate. That's what he says, though, as well. Yeah, exactly. He's right. But that's what he's then trying to do in the book. He's trying to separate them so that we can decode them and work on them. Yes, and, 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 I, and I would say I'm only 17 pages into 324. I'd like more practical stuff. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. There's no manual. Yeah. You know, he says, when we're curious about subject, yeah, Tony Robbins would say, okay, right, if you're struggling to be gritty, here's what you're going to do. Correct. Correct. Get up tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and do the shittest thing you can possibly do first. Correct. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're up to, that's what I'm talking about, yeah. And he comes up with something. Whereas here, it's all a little bit theoretical. Um, he, he says, doing the hard work to learn more about a subject doesn't feel like hard work when we're curious. It requires effort to be certain, but it feels like play. When work becomes play, that's one way to know for sure. Now you're playing the infinite game. And then he explains goals and grit is the subject of the next chapter. So we're on drive and, and, and motivation here, aren't we? And then I've gone a few further pages and then we're on to extrinsic and intrinsic drivers, aren't we? What do you reckon to all this? Uh, well, I, I've underlined this. They were talking about measure happiness levels among Americans and blah, blah, they get 75K and then the pleasure drops off. So it says, after that point... Just explain that to our listeners, Mike, because I think this is very, very, very interesting. Yes, I do. You know, he's obviously got to pick a, a number and then generalise based on that number. I get that. I'm not nitpicking about that. But what he's talking about, he says, measure happiness levels among Americans as Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman discovered, and they rise in direct proportion to income, but only until we earn about $75,000 a year. After that point, they start to diverge wildly. Happiness becomes untethered to income, because once we meet our basic needs, the lure of all the stuff it took to meet them begins to lose its luster. I, I really think that's very important, and I think that's very uh, different in sales. So effectively, what he's saying is get to target, and then what's going to happen once you get to target? Well, what he's really saying is that the whole sales industry is absolute bollocks, Michael. That's what he's saying in that statement. That's what Daniel Kahneman's saying. The whole concept of basic salary and commission is utter nonsense, and that the way in which our industry and the world you and I operate in, and the way it tries to motivate the behaviours it wants... It's just completely stupid. That's what he's saying is that a Nobel Prize winning thinker has undertaken detailed study into the fact that actually the entire way the sales industry is structured is rubbish. That's what that statement says. And that's a slight issue I have with the book. I have this image of a Nobel laureate prize winning writer not having grown up in some shit place where he had to scrap for everything. I don't know what university Elon Musk went to, but it's got to be Harvard or Stanford or something like that. I'm looking at them now. I'm going to Google it. Yeah, but, you know, it's like Marissa Mayer's CV. I always point everybody to Marissa Mayer's CV, and I say, well, she's got a brilliant CV, but it actually probably helped that uh, she went to Harvard and then worked at Google. Well, Elon Musk went to Pretoria Boys High School uh, in South Africa, and he went to University of Pretoria for five months which allowed him to avoid doing his service in the South African military. He then went to University of Pennsylvania, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and a BSc in Physics. So it's not mega, actually, is it? <laughs> but No, and then he was accepted to a, a PhD program in material science at Stanford as well. 
Yeah, he's a bright guy, isn't he? Yeah, but you get it's not so much about that. Getting back more to my bricklayer that's been laying my bricks. Um, I, I think if you put him in a sales environment, you look at a lot of the salespeople that we deal with, Johnny. A lot of them actually are from quite modest backgrounds. Yes, they are. They're working class heroes. And I think then a lot of them, there's no decline in happiness the more money they earn. They get happier the more money they earn. Yes, they attach a lot of, rightly or wrongly, they attach a lot of their happiness to stuff and money because they know what it feels like to have not had it. Exactly. And then he talks about the neurochemistry of reward. Yes, dopamine. Yeah, I mean, that's a good thread in the book, and it's obviously a very important uh, thing to talk about. Everybody talks about it, don't they? Everybody talks about it. And what's interesting is he talks about how that all combines to create this concept of flow and how flow in and of itself is effectively based on the studies, the hidden, almost inner secret of peak performance. Do you know what I mean? He thinks. Yes. And he backs up very cleverly and well. And there is some very, very, very good studies on the concept of flow. It's very compelling, his evidence. I can't, you know, that's what I say, I'm not criticising the book because you can't knock the book. No. You know, he's saying, psychologists refer to flow as the source code of intrinsic motivation. And it is true. That's the bit that makes you want to play the game. Let's get it right, Mike. Why is the video game industry worth billions and billions and billions of dollars? Because video games take people into flow. Often you'll speak to people who'll go, oh God, yeah, I started playing a game last night at 10 o'clock before I knew it was 3am. Is that about flow or is that about escapism? Uh, Completely about flow. You reckon? Completely about flow because they don't have flow elsewhere in their lives. And that disappearing down that rabbit hole of the game, people play video games at that extent because that's the place in their life where they have that control and that flow because they don't have it in work. If you had a job that took you into flow, there's no way you'd play that amount of video games. There's no way you'd play video games for five hours in one setting. No way. But actually, that's why the video game industry is so big, particularly with sort of that over 20, over 23, over 24 gamer, because there's that sense of flow, that being involved, immersed in that other world where actually you can control it, whereas life is much harder to control in the real world, isn't it? And that's why the games industry is as big as it is. I don't really agree with you, but then I don't play video games either. And then I'm sat there thinking, well, when do I ever get in flow? don't know, really. It, it just feels like a concept that's been created that then is easily attachable to lots of different states. Because I've never heard about it in any other book. I have. What, the term flow? God loads, yeah. There's Mihaly who is the godfather of flow. Never heard about it before in my life. It's mentioned in the Robert Cialdini book. There's a lot of mention of him in that. Well, I've read that one. Mihaly Ching... I can't pronounce his surname. And I'm pretty good at pronouncing surnames, but I can't pronounce that one. Uh, he wrote a whole book on flow. Right, fair enough. And they actually mention him in here. It's a very, very common concept is flow. But what he's saying, you know, he said people describe flow as their favourite experience whilst re- psychologists refer to it as the source code of intrinsic motivation. It's that whole thing with golf, isn't it? Why is golf so great? Well, there's there's that moment. I was talking to a mate of mine who shot 72 gross in a medal last summer. And he said, it was like the whole thing was like a dream. And 
the way he described it, he said it was weird, mate. He said it was like a dream. And he said it was like an out-of-body experience. He described it as an out-of-body experience. He said everything I did went right. You see, isn't this, this is an interesting philosophical debate. And I'm not saying this to be argumentative in any way. I played a lot of golf to a good standard. It was never like that for me. I just wandered around and had <laughs> right? a chat. Fine. To but then honest. let's relate that to those days, some days where you, you, you're selling and you just start making shit go right. You're just in the zone, aren't you? Well, maybe people have a different state in which they're in flow. Yes, different levels. Well, we're not at different levels, is it? They it just manifests in different people in a different way. Maybe I was in flow when I hit the ball yes. really well, but maybe my state of flow was wandering around chatting to my playing partner. Yes, absolutely. I was completely chilled, always. He says here, every day he wakes up at 4am and starts writing. Really? Give me a break. I see these posts on LinkedIn. The start's my perfect day. I get up at five o'clock. I do 3,000 press-ups. Then I go and find an African child to help. Then I meditate. I say, oh, get a grip, man. I've tried it. It's really hard to do that, you know. Really, really, really hard. Do you know why it's hard? Why? It's just, I don't think it's, I just don't think it's natural. You know, the way that, you know, we're cavemen at the end of the day. Go out, find some food, kill it, eat it. Try and make some more babies. Have a sleep. <laughs> That's what we are though, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, it's true. You know. I went through a phase of really forcing myself to practice guitar at 5am every day. But actually I realised I wasn't getting that much enjoyment from it. It wasn't making me any happier. Yeah, exactly. I was getting a bit better at my guitar, but even then I wasn't improving that much because I was half of bloody sleep. I'm better off taking a 10 minute break at 11am, making a cup of tea, practicing my guitar for five, 10 minutes and getting back on my phone. That's much better for my mental state. But the whole, oh, I get up at 4am, I shut up. Shut up. Yeah, properly does. I'm, I've actually put a star next to that. I'm going to actually ask him what time you get up this morning. <laughs> he's not coming on the show, this guy. Oh, is he not? But right, no. He's a bit too big time for us, Bryce. Right, I'll be more honest about his book in that case. I thought he was coming on the show. He's, this this guy's no, this guy is a big time author, Price. He's a proper New York Times best-selling author. He's not coming on our show. I've not even invited him. And then he talks about his recipe for drive, which is to stack... Our five most potent intrinsic drivers, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And now this is really interesting, actually. Curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. So let's start with curiosity. He said, this is where the biology is designed to begin. This is your basic interest in something neurochemically underpinned by a little bit of norepinephrine and dopamine. While curiosity alone is a potent driver, it's also a foundational ingredient in passion, which is even bigger. Thus, we'll next learn to turn that flicker of curiosity into a flame of passion by adding a lot more neurochemical fuel, norepinephrine, and dopamine to our intrinsic fire. Then comes meaning and purpose. Now, I think this is actually very interesting because when sometimes we talk to candidates, often you see them and you think, okay, I, when I was listening to this as the audio, I was trying to imagine people I know, people I've spoken to and scenarios I've heard of. And what you realize is you think, oh, right, yeah, I know why that one's looking job now. He's got no purpose in his work. And then it made me think a lot about, for example, why a lot of people stay. So like we've talked about this, I, I deal with people in the healthcare market, don't I, Pricey? Sometimes. You do. When I can be bothered. And I find it frustrating because they're less mercenary than a lot of the other people in the other industries, parts of the IT industry we deal with. Well, they're not as good at selling stuff. No, in it. No, in it. Um, and I find it frustrating. I think, why are you, why are you selling to healthcare? You, you, why are you so up your backside? But what they do have in healthcare 
And what keeps people in that sector, even though they could earn way more money, even if they move to public sector, just, just selling to councils out instead of selling to the NHS, what keeps them in it is there's a curiosity. They get curiosity. It's an intrinsic drive because they're interested. They're curious. They, they, it's an interesting place to sell to. And what they also have is a lot of them have purpose. They really feel like, <laughs> it's, um, and I'm being sarcastic, but they all think they're curing cancer. Does that make sense? It does. And it keeps a lot of them in the game. See, I don't speak to many healthcare people, right? That's not my market. It would drive you nuts. If you're a healthcare salesperson, call Johnny. If you're a healthcare salesperson, don't call me. <laughs> but maybe I'm being cynical because I, I, I know a few healthcare salespeople and the very, very, very best ones that I know, I know two or three. I'm not convinced they're that curious, really. I think they're curious about how to sell stuff to people. I don't think they're that curious about the client themselves. I think they're curious from a selfish perspective. No, I think you're giving them way too much credit. Oh, really? Yeah, way too much. And I think the reason a lot of them stay in healthcare is it makes them feel that there is purpose to... They don't realise it's what it is. But having read this book, it, it was a real penny-dropping moment for me. Why would somebody stay in a sales environment that's not as lucrative as other sales environments when they could leave that sales environment and go to a more lucrative sales environment? And what I realised is there's a, a sense of purpose about a lot of the people in healthcare. A lot of them feel like they're curing cancer. There's also naivety. Yeah. And there's a lack of drive. Absolutely. It's, it's different. There, it, yeah, and they also have a curiosity. I, I always said, Pricey, and I've always maintained this, my first job in sales was at Parcel Force, selling parcel distribution. And I was on a basic salary of £11,000 and an OTE of 14. And which is just nuts when you think about it. But I loved that job. And I was unbelievably curious about the world of logistics and the concept of getting a parcel, getting it to an aeroplane, and getting it to another part of the world in under 24 hours. It just used to fascinate me more than anything else in any other job I've ever had since. But I knew that I couldn't really build a life for myself on £11,000 basic salary and 14 OTE. But you think about that. I was very intrinsically motivated. I had immense curiosity. I used to go and hang out at Sturton in the sort centre and talk to people. I used to go and hang out in depots just because I just loved it. Fair enough. And I get how that could become... And then it made me think a lot about people who are real enthusiasm sellers or you get, you'll, you'll see this, you'll deal with certain candidates where you think you're good at this because you just love the kit and you're that into the kit that the customers pick up on that love of the kit and they buy off you. It's more than that belief thing. It's more that whole energy. Does that make sense? It does make sense, but I think that's slightly different actually. I, th I think in terms of selling, you can do a lot worse than be really, really, really happy, a really, really nice person and sell stuff because people are just going to associate niceness with your product and then they're going to buy it. Yeah, of course they do. I don't know. But that's the point of human beings, isn't it? Everybody's different. Yes. And then on, I'm on page 29 now. He actually creates a little bit of a practical, start by writing down 25 things you're curious about. And what he talks about is finding things that make you curious. I actually folded over the page in this book and I thought, Tell you what, I'm going to fold it. I thought, all right, when I'm talking, it's a manual. I'm going to fold over the good pages. That's the only one I folded over. <laughs> it is. I actually stopped doing right. it after that. But, okay. but that's because I want a manual and this isn't a manual. Yes. 
that was the only instruction in the book. He could have highlighted the important bits and let you read it in well, 20 minutes. It depends. You know, you obviously really like this book and have found it interesting from a, like an academic perspective. Yeah. And I think it's fair to say that if people listening to this show want an academic, thought-provoking, thoughtful book, this is a great book. Absolutely no doubt about it. If people want a manual that's easy to read, it's one out of ten. But it's not designed as a manual, so I get it. But anyway, go on. Okay, I'm now on page 37. Just on the curious thing, I thought you were going to talk more about that. I thought you were going to talk more about that. So he says, start by writing down 25 things you're curious about. And then he talks about intersections. I can't remember exactly what the example is, but one is a very specific sports thing, something to do with American football. One's diet. Yeah, yeah, And he says, where's the intersection between the two points? Because then you're going to layer interest in it. I thought that's fair enough. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that's absolutely spot on. What he's saying is your, your, your purpose and your passion is where many of your curiosities intersect. Yes. And what he's saying is if you can then work in an area that is part of that intersection, that amount of motivation that comes from that curiosity is part of what then generates the flow. And the flow is what generates the peak performance. And if we took a hundred top sales guys and we, we brought them in, if we got a cross section of a hundred people, we just went into LinkedIn, picked a hundred. So let's bring them in. We said, right, this one's not winning. This one is winning. Now, obviously we then have to take out the factor of this one works for Salesforce and this one works for Shitsville software. Let's just assume they all work on an equal footing with equal products. One's winning, one's not. I, I think you'd find that that there's no doubt you'd find that the ones who weren't winning a significant area of it was one's more fired up than the other. One's just more up for it. But what he would be saying is one's got more purpose. One's more motivated. Yes, but we were talking about curiosity. Yes. And if we took those two salespeople who work for the same company, blah, 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 I think out of 100, you would find an equal proportion were interested in either the technology or the sales process. So when it comes to me, when I'm talking about candidates, I personally, I'm really into the ones that are curious about the sales process and how they can navigate it. Not the technology. Not technology. I, th- I think the companies that recruit because of what somebody's sold are just 100% wrong. Yeah, I concur with that. But what's interesting is I am on page 37 on putting purpose into practice, which is very alliterative, isn't it? Massively transformative purpose. Not many people have massively transformative purpose in life, Mike, as he describes it. Possibly not knowingly, but this is sort of part of my problem with the book. I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay. And I know I'm criticising it incorrectly because you're obviously really into it, so we've got different... uh, I'm sort of into it. I'm into it because I'm creating a podcast about it. Well, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. That's very true. Page 41. Autonomy is... Then he talks about another key part of what creates... The full intrinsic stack. Yes, and he's talking about autonomy and mastery. Now, these, I think, are really interesting. Autonomy is the desire for freedom required to pursue your passion and purpose. It's the need to steer your own ship. Mastery is the next step. It drives you towards expertise. It pushes you to own the skills. And he's saying they're key parts of that motivational combo that gets you into flow that makes you a peak performer. What I put on the note of this, actually, on, on page 43 is, so if you want to influence someone, you have to tap into their autonomous motivation. Go on. Well, he talks about autonomous motivation, doesn't he? And controlled motivation. 
And he says autonomy is always the more powerful driver. Yes. And I think often, you know, that's why people don't move jobs when they say they think they're going to, because they don't realize at a subconscious level that they have no autonomous motivation to move jobs. They think they've got controlled motivation, which they have, but if they don't have autonomous motivation, they're not going to move jobs. A bit like your clients. If they don't have autonomous motivation, they're not going to buy stuff. No. And what he's also talking to is, in, in another sense, the autonomy to get on with your own work, to be the, the captain of your own ship. That's the context in which he's talking here. So again, it's another really interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's in a way, it's rubbishing a lot of the world you and I live in. He's saying that to truly motivate people, they need autonomy. Do you know what's interesting, actually? So we've got a guy who works for us called Jose. I wonder if I can show you what I've written to him today. I was, I was planning out his diary. So actually, I can show you this, I think. Jose doesn't really want autonomy. He wants you to tell him what to do. I've put, plan for Jose. I've put, Jose is a bright, intelligent man, perfectly capable of planning his own time. Then at the bottom of it, I've put, Jose, plan your own time, send me a diary. And? Well, we'll see what happens, won't we? We'll see whether he wants autonomy or whether he wants to plan his own diary or whether he wants it planned for him. I think most people want to do their own thing, really. Don't you think? Yeah, I do. I do. I have to say, you know, we've been at this a while, me and you now, Inward Revenue and Inward as we've got it branded now. The thought of working for someone else. Depends what it was, obviously, but the thought of some person phoning me up and saying, how many calls have I made? I'd just be like, listen, I'm just not interested. (laughs) I just just wouldn't be interested. I say, say, listen, I'm just not interested. I'm, I'm resigning now. Yeah. And actually, one of the things that still is immensely enjoyable about what we do is that we have, outside of the agreement you and I would make with each other on any given item, we have autonomy to do what we want. And that is very motivating. Look at that deal I've just signed with that massive VC-backed company. It was hilarious, listeners. Mike's just won us a very important managed service contract, the first of its kind in our business in in the way it was structured. One of the first full stop in the IT industry, I would think, actually. Yes, I would imagine so. And uh, Mike's just sort of gone off and done it and then told me it's done. And then I said, great, who's going to do the legals? Uh, We need to make sure that there's a a decent quality formal contract in place with the client. Mike has written the contract himself. Yep. (laughs) To be fair, the client has signed it. It's on my printer, just there. I've just got to countersign it. (laughs) I I was doing my pieces, listeners, saying we've got to ring the solicitor and get her to draft it. Mike wrote it himself because he's a fully qualified lawyer, aren't you, Mike? Well, yeah. But how hard is it to be a lawyer? All the lawyers out there listening, I've never really met any that have blown me away. But that's autonomy though, isn't it? Yeah, and he does give a really interesting example about something he calls 20% time. Oh, yeah. Which is a Google thing. And what is fascinating here is he says, basically Google employees are allowed to spend 20% of their time pursuing projects of their own creation, which I found very interesting. And actually, from a concept of passion, there's a lot of talk about the four-day week. Everyone's talking about four-day weeks. Personally, as a manager and a leader in a business, if Mike were to ring me tomorrow and say, what do you think to the four-day week? I'd say, I'd rather we implemented 20% time. I have no passion for the idea of the four-day week, but I do have passion for the idea of 20% time. I do have passion for the idea of saying to our people, right, one day a week, here's what you do. You work on a recruitment project, something, if you want to set up a desk in Guadalajara, you want to open a Mexico desk, go, go for your life, do it. You want to do charity work, around recruitment and place people in the NFP sector, great. I'd be more excited by that than the whole idea of the four-day week. But what he's saying is, and what is fascinating is, out of 20% time at Google, 
came AdSense, Gmail, Google Maps, Google News, Google Earth, and Gmail Labs. I mean, that's nuts, isn't it? Amazing, yeah. Some of their highest, most profitable products came from that amount of autonomy. What do you make of that? And then we get into Patagonia. So just give the explain to our listeners. So Patagonia exercises non-negotiable for peak performance. So pretty much, if you want to go surfing, you just stop what you're doing and go surfing. All right. But, Mike, well, the reality is that's a very, very successful company. Why is it successful, though? Why is it successful, really? Because the brand's right. Because the brand's right. Because the brand's right. Brand's but, right. Why, but why is the brand right? Because the people have passion for the brand. No. But why do people have passion? Yeah, they do. That's why brands become great brands because it's people cause have... Because it's, it's a good branding agency. Yes, but the, but the people live, eat, and breathe the brand. And part of that brand is, yeah, we go surfing. Do you really... Uh, right, let's get... Who's the chief exec of Patagonia? Let's get them on the show. They're obviously not going to come on the show. I'm being glib, but... Well, the chief exec, the founder is Yvonne Schwinard, famously dubbed Let My People Go Surfing. But that's the brand. The brand is Let My People Surf. That's brilliant. That's them in alignment with their brand, isn't it? I, uh, I just don't buy that. I think that's them creating an environment where they can recruit whoever they want. And then you, when you can recruit whoever you want, you get the best people. Then because you've got the best people, you've got the best product. I think it's backwards way around that as a statement. So you think it's a perk, not a philosophy? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't think that's about letting people do their thing? Maybe it was. I don't know. But like, if you've got, let's take Google as an example, because they're never going to ring me with a job brief. You can, obviously, if you want Google. Whoever's in charge, 07908594926. But if your number's not in my phone, I'm not going to answer it. So you might have to leave a voicemail. But if we've got the chief head honcho of Google on, what's that 20% about? What what does it actually allow them to do, really? It allows them to recruit the very best people in the market. All right, so we recruit the very best people in the market who actually were 100 times as productive as the very worst people. So their 100 hours is worth somebody else's 50. So actually their 80 hours is worth somebody else's 40. So we're still getting 80 hours. We've got a brilliant brand. We can't fail. But the reality is those people value that autonomy. Now, I think the whole concept of autonomy in a corporate work environment is bullshit because nobody's autonomous in a corporate environment because you're a cog in a machine. Exactly. Real autonomy is fucking off and becoming a furniture maker in a workshop on your own in Norway. That's autonomy. Building bespoke toy boxes. That's autonomy. Actually, working for the man at Patagonia in California and taking a monthly wage as a cog in the Patagonia machine. Yeah, it's faux autonomy, isn't it? Correct. 100%. Do you know what I mean? Couldn't agree with you more. But those people feel like, hey man, you can come here and do whatever you like, providing you do exactly what the company tells you to do. Yeah. Uh, But you get to go surfing whenever you see fit. Unless you're doing really badly, because if you're doing really badly, you're actually going to sit there feeling guilty about going surfing. But nobody does badly because it's Patagonia and the business makes shit loads of money anyway. It's true, right? Let's say there's 10 reps at Patagonia, all sat in the office, whatever, right now, whatever time it is, wherever they are, surfs up, or whatever these gnarly hipsters say. Oh, well, the guy that covers the UK is not doing too well, but it's okay. He's going surfing. Do you think his boss is going to say, knock yourself out, son, you're at 20% yeah, target? I'm just off surfing. Knock yourself out, lad. You go out and surf. I'm going to hit the surf, boss. Yeah, and take your stuff yeah, with you. Good, hit the surf and don't return. I'll get you a cardboard box. And then he talks about some obvious stuff. Not exercise? Yeah. Well, you're not big for that. 
that's why I'm actually shuffling around so much, having exercised too much a year ago. It is important. I, I tell you, in the last few days, whilst it's been light in the morning, I've just got up and walked the dogs rather than getting on my peloton. Yeah, me too, actually. Been out chasing rabbits. Just that daylight and the, the, the mist coming up and the fresh air and walking at a good clip. It's literally, I'm a different human being for it. A different kind of exercise rather than flogging myself in front of some attractive female peloton instructor, which isn't too bad either. Flogging yourself? Why don't you ride your bike? We. Um, and then he talks about mastery, which I also think is really important. And again, this I think I made a note here about this. Again, I think mastery, along with flow, is one of the reasons people play video games. It's an area of their lives in which they can be good at it. I do agree with that. I mean, that's what Meta's all about as well, isn't it, to be clear? What do you mean? Um, a slightly tangential thing, but I think if you create an alternate life, you're creating one in which you have mastery of your own life. Oh, the metaverse. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's an alternate universe in which you're a top boy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time over Christmas. I really wanted to chill out and I played this game called Elite Dangerous. Never heard of it. Now, Elite Dangerous is just unbelievable. It's a, it's just another universe in our universe. What do you do, shoot people? No, you fly around a, like an infinite galaxy in a spaceship. It's a long old story. But there are people in that elite dangerous world that have unbelievable mastery of that world. They're big hitters in that world, like really big hitters, like they're important people in that game universe, right? Now, actually, if I was retired or something, I'd play loads of Elite Dangerous, but it's not a game you can play casually for half an hour every five days. You can't do it. But what is fascinating is the mastery that they have of that world and that environment. And you think, I wonder if you've got any mastery elsewhere. Well, it's true of all the martial arts, Johnny. You know, as, I've done loads of those kind of things. And, and actually, there's some people that are really, really good at martial arts. Right. And that's their moment to shine in their mastery, isn't it? Yes. And what this guy's saying is that's great if that's what you covet. But what he's also saying, mastery, the desire to get better at things we do, it's devotion to craft, the need for progress, the urge to continually improve. Humans love nothing more than stacking little victory atop little victory atop little victory. Neurochemically, these victories produce dopamine. Scientists used to believe that dopamine was simply a reward drug, meaning this chemical showed up after we accomplished a goal as a way of reinforcing goal attainment. We now know that dopamine is actually the brain's way of encouraging us to act, meaning the chemical doesn't show up after we take a risk. Blah, blah, blah. So as Dan Pink says, he quotes here, if I've read Drive, actually, it was a very good book. The biggest single motivator explains author Dan Pink Pink is making progress in meaningful work. I think is interesting. That mastery, progressing. And then he talks about Mihaly Chigmengblum, the godfather of flow psychology, flow state triggers. And then he talks about his skiing and how he likes to decide to explore parts of the mountain he's never been on before. There's a quote here I found interesting. Disconnection from meaningful values is a lack of curiosity, passion, and purpose in your life. Disconnection from meaningful work is about being forced to do work, brackets, a lack of autonomy, that is boring or overwhelming and does not advance core skills, brackets, a lack of mastery. This is yet another reason why it's important to get our biology. What it did get me thinking about this was where you meet candidates, where you realise that they, and they say to you, it's just really boring. I've been doing the same thing for years and years and years, and I know how to do it. And you realise, actually, yeah, I get it now. I've got to say, I don't find that boring, though. I know how to do my job pretty well. Yes, but you always find new areas. But what you and I are both quite good at is finding new avenues to find interesting in the work. Uh, I guess, maybe, don't know. Without realising it. 
Whereas some people never quite get their head round that whole... I guess that's autonomy. Yes, we have the autonomy to do different things, toy with things, toy with the business. Whereas what if you work as some guy that works a big corporation X in, you know, you are literally Homer Simpson in Sector 7G. So that's a loads of people that... And you've been doing it for 10 years and you do the same job every single day, same territory, same clients... You've got no capacity, no autonomy, no ability to change that. All you've got every year is a blank slate and a new target. That's going to bore the shit out of some people. And I've always been a little bit disparaging sometimes out of people that ring me and say, I'm looking for a new job because I'm finding the job I've got really boring. And I go, where were you to target last year? And they go, oh, I was 140% to target. I earned £170,000. And I'm thinking, are you nuts? But actually, deep down in their heart, their soul is dying. And that's an incredibly valid reason to want to leave the job. Maybe. I mean, I never buy it, actually. I'm inclined, having given it more thoughts, to be more open-minded about it. So you're the client. I'm the recruiter. Yeah. So, Johnny, I've got this candidate. Why is he looking for a job, Mike? Oh, he's just really bored. All right, great. Thanks for that. (laughs) Doesn't sound good, does it? No. Doesn't sound true, is what it doesn't sound. But actually, there's a reality here, which is the guy struggling to get out of bed and do it in the morning. He's just thinking, it's Groundhog Day, this. Oh, I'm learning nothing. It's dull. God, same old shit, different day. And every day's getting harder and harder and harder. Three, ten years ago, he was all fired up. Wow, this is interesting, brilliant. Let's do it. I wonder if I can hit target. Now he knows he can hit target. And remember, he's way over his £75,000 a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Way over it. All true. He's got a nice watch. He's got a nice car. He's made some nice dints into his mortgage. Actually, I'm a bit more empathic towards that excuse for leaving a job than I perhaps was two weeks ago before I'd read this. Who knows? I'm not. Well, I know, but, but you are a sociopath and you have no empathy for anyone. That's not true. Are you insulted? No. So the next chapter is goals. Are we covering that or are we calling it into it? Is it an hour? We have been talking an hour. We've made good progress. So it might be that we get another show out of this. It's up to you. So I think we should wrap up today. We will see you again, same time, same place, same channel. Book Club is back. Back.